0: There's no better time to become a member of the DSR Network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, If you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support.
1: Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convened to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables will be hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson for our second roundtable discussion, Fritz Meyer, the Dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, it should be noted for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chairpeople of the roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion from the second part of the second roundtable in our special series, The Road to COP28.
2: I thought we, you know, we continue, let's continue talking about the, the politics of this uh, as a rich, rich vein, um, to be sure, uh, probably some different uh, perspectives on that. But nonetheless, agreement that there's a political challenge here. Let me let me bring in Karen uh, uh, and then Laurie on this. I know uh, both of you have already spoken a bit about that, but um, your thoughts on this.
3: Hi, so um, I want to go back to uh, what Robert and Mark were talking about, and that is um Uh, Mark didn't use the economist term of sunk costs, right? So like we have all this infrastructure that exists. How do we uh, deal with uh, the ongoing investments including the policy? And we can think of these as sort of relatively hardened into place by whatever means. And it it doesn't necessarily take, uh, you know, greedy people sitting there making each decision. It's that there are, you know, one after another old coal burning plants that were not forced to re-up under the Clean Air Act. And there've been many maneuvers like this in the U.S. I'll just give the U.S. example. Uh, When you look at uh, who is polluting the most of any kind of pollution, what you can see is what uh, sociologists have called disproportionality. Uh, that there are certain industries that are disproportionately responsible for most of different kinds of pollution, depending on what, whatever kind. And then within those industries, there are specific plants, specific corporations that are most responsible. And um, the interesting thing about these is that these tend to be the least efficient so uh, if we're thinking about what governments can do, that's absolutely something, you know, that we, to get back to that idea about subsidies, uh, is that it's not just necessarily direct, uh, you know, payments to fossil fuels, it's uh, policies that don't force people to, co- you know, level up to uh, even 1970s standards. So, um, you know, w- one of the concerns about China, of course, has been under what standards those coal plants would be coming online, and, uh, you know, I just don't know that the. US has any moral authority to negotiate with that. but but I think that this uh, this legacy is what we have to think about. And I think that's very difficult for journalists to convey. You know, I, I really, um, the idea of who's up, who's down,, uh, you know, these sort of conflicts are not capturing well these sort of lasting legacies of uh, institutions that were based on completely different assumptions than what we've been describing today about the future world.
2: Laurie, uh, you'd raise some of the same themes, I think, at the beginning of of our conversation. Uh, How do you see this?
4: You know, for those of us that have been on the global health scene for decades, um, we've seen all this before it was tobacco. Uh, the tobacco industry created its own lying scientific branch. It created its own massive publicity machine and lobbying machine. Um, and it created a polycrisis in that it wasn't just cancer and heart disease and so on in individuals. It became passive smoke that affected the non-smoker. It became a question of whether individual citizens had a duty over the health of other citizens and could be therefore in a sense muzzled if you were putting it in Rand Paul terms um, and and forced to comply with regulations. And it became about uh, tobacco subsidies and agricultural subsidies. It became about equity and racial issues and the dimensions were enormous. And in each case, the tobacco industry figured out a way to exploit each one of these micro differences in the poly in order to say, see, it's not really us. It's not really tobacco. It's not really this. You know, we're going to put cool menthol filters on for black people and we're going to say this is your hip cigarette. So you'll want cigarettes. Um, We're in that situation, I think, that has completely confused the whole conversation around what to do about climate change. We're past, is it severe? Everybody's been underwater this year. So now we're at the, is it um, something that we have to act at with tremendous haste? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. I mean, I mean, I—I I, want to ask um, Malin about Prochlorococcus and how much longer are we even going to have adequate oxygen production from the seas? Um, What is the effect of heating surface temperatures in the top 12 centimeters of the oceans on prochlorococcus populations and competing algal populations emitting toxins? Um, We could go on and on about the balance in the seas. You could pick any ecological system, any ecological system on Earth, and you can see the damage is already done. It's already underway. Nothing is future. It is now. So how do we make the pub, the political response, the economic response, reflect the urgency of the now? And that is where we're failing. And we're failing because we look to individual solutions. You go find money and buy a solar panel. You go find money, sell your old beaten up clunker and buy a fancy Tesla. You are responsible. That is like completely wrong. I mean, okay, fine. Everybody can go buy Tesla's. I don't care, but that's not going to change things. It's certainly not going to change it fast enough to to save the global prochlorococcus population, if you will, Um, or any other tree growth or anything else that you think is mitigating or can offset the tremendous damage being done. The only way we get to where we need to be and get there fast enough that your children and your grandchildren are not compelled to live in a total nightmare is if we take on the fossil fuel producers head on. And um, when we talk about subsidies, I mean, these guys don't even pay taxes. Exxon's the biggest corporation on the planet and it's paying almost no taxes anywhere. I I don't, tax them, force them, they made massive profits. There's more CO2 going into the atmosphere today than before COVID. So all this sort of let's go green power and everything is all really groovy and cool, but it's not getting to the core problem. And that's, that's where I'm going to leave it, because otherwise I'd start getting really angry. <laughs> I am so angry at the oil companies and the oil industry. I grew up in California, surrounded by standard oil, with oil derricks offshore, pumping tar onto the beaches. I was a kid who grew up with um, special stuff we took to the beach to scrub the tar off our feet. And, um, and inhaling pollution so thick that we had what were called sleep times instead of recess because the air was too polluted outside in Los Angeles for us to be go, able to go out and play. And we still are letting these guys off the hook all these decades later.
2: So, uh, a lot there, Malin, I don't know if you wanna answer the uh, technical question first or comment on the politics uh, of that. Uh, how is the uh, uh, caucus doing?
5: Yeah, there's a lot to pick up on there, Laurie. You know, and one way, you know, one thing I really agree on is that our, our way of life is incredibly dependent on the, the wildlife, the clean water and then the oceans, even when we don't see them. Right. It's the, the long supply chains that that connect the oceans to the seafood and our plate feeding uh, more than half the people on Earth alive right now, just as as one example. Um, I think one place I, I disagree, though, is you know the the I disagree that the damage is already done. You know we're at the point where it's it's being done, but it's not too late to act for many of our um, ecosystems. You know the ones I I do really worry about coral reefs and others, but at a, it, at sort of a broader Earth system, this is the key moment. I mean, this is the key decade for making this transition towards. Uh, I don't I don't disagree economy. with you.
4: I, I meant so I, as the damage is being done. Sorry.
5: Yeah, no, totally. Totally. I, just, I, I think that's an important nuance. You know, I, I don't think we've, I, this is not, we're not too far yet. We're just on the, on the precipice. And this really is a, a key time to act at all levels of society from the individual all the way up to government. And I think, you know, one, one comment, you know, the politics and how difficult politics and subsidies are has been a, a key conversation today and i think that's really important but i think the importance of transparency and visibility is can be incredibly powerful i think that's also where communication and journalism can can come in but it applies to everyone it applies to climate activism as well you know just as one example within you know within my lifetime and our lifetimes you know we've seen within the us this incredible transition from smoking being everywhere to smoking being very few places in society, and that there's that tipping point in um, in societal perception that then pushes politics and regulations, um, sometimes quite quickly. Um, and the question is, how do we create that social momentum for change, for climate change as, as well? Um, and I think, you know, just as one ocean example, where I think there are uh, really some opportunities to both maintain um the resources and the ways of life that we value so much, but also reduce emissions comes around high seas high seas fishing. you know a lot of distant water fleets a lot of seafood is caught far from where it needs to be caught, um, just the way that our global fisheries are set up. Um, highly inefficient burns an enormous amount of uh, amount of fuel. Also there are often labor and other other issues involved as well. and yet we can catch the same amount of seafood close to our shores without having to travel as far to, to catch it. So from a human health and, and food perspective, we can maintain the same amount of food production, but also um, produce a lot less carbon emissions. Also interesting questions about how we uh, produce similar transitions around global shipping um, and continue the economy and the transport across the oceans while we're producing less and fewer emissions
4: can i just clarify one thing about Prochlorococcus and also the symbiotes that are also microscopic that live inside of coral polyps the animals and give them their color digest their food if you will allow them to live so that is why we refer to bleached coral reefs that is when the symbiotes have disappeared which includes disappearing the color and you end up with basically the animal skeleton remaining um i I think like it's kind of remarkable only about 20, 25 years ago, the real importance of Prochlorococcus became clear and we understood that we have this massive population of microscopic creatures that basically come alive with the sun and they turn uh, they create oxygen and then they go to sleep at night, die off, and you have a new population the next day. And then all the oceans, this is where oxygen is coming from. And I think, um, you know, you can correct me if, I, if I'm off, um, Malin, but I believe that it's about 35% of the oxygen we breathe is coming from the oceans. And they, you know, we're, we're still at a rudimentary stage in even understanding how this massive population of sea creature works, but it's very clear they have their own level of tolerance for temperature and their own level of tolerance for acidity. And there's two things we're doing to the oceans right now. We're making them hotter and we're making them more acidic. And we're making them more acidic because the only way they absorb all that carbon, we want the oceans to suck up and mop up for us so that we can continue to produce uh, as much plastic and pollution as we want. The only way they can do that is by converting it into an acid. So it's an acidic process. And, and, the, and as the oceans become more acidic and hotter, we're losing, microscopic populations are the key to everything from crabs forming the shell around their bodies, to the, the fish that you want to eat, and to the uh, microscopic creatures that whales thrive on. And if we, we can't, if you look at the die-off rates in the seas, Especially if you just want to look at, you know, the equivalent of polar bears for the seas, look at whales and sea lions and sea otters, and you can see that we are destroying their ecologies very rapidly. And there are behavioral things going on in these sea mammals that indicate that they're going bananas, trying to survive in an increasingly hostile set of ocean ecologies. And all the fish, all the animals, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but things are moving away from the equatorial towards the poles in search of colder seas. And as they get towards the poles, more and more the ice is melting. That's freshwater. It's more acidic. So we're, we are playing havoc with the basic biochemistry of our planet and with its supporting capacity for the microbes that are the bottom of the entire chain of this planet. And we don't have time to muck around with this. I have become very impressed with the speed with this, that this is happening. It is akin to what we look at with an epidemic. When we start with the, everybody saying, ah, it's only five cases. Then a week later, it's only 20 cases. Don't get carried away. Only one person has died and soon you have a pandemic. So. That's where I would, I'm touching off of what you said about the seas. You are seeing the seas as more resilient than I think I see them. Um, and, and, you know, I would just add that we've now reached a point where there is no depth of ocean without plastic in it. And there is no sea creature without microplastics in them. So we are already terraforming the planet. And we want to talk about terraforming Mars. We're plasticizing and terraforming the entire ocean environment and the rivers that feed into it. And we don't even know what it's going to do, what it means, how it will change life as we know it.
2: So, Allison, I know you wanted to get in and, and maybe comment on the, uh, you know, if it, it of course, uh, we know a great deal about the things that are happening as uh, Laurie was just talking about. And I guess the, the core challenge now is how does that get translated into? Into political action, policy change, whether at the governmental, national governmental level, or at the COP or elsewhere, um, but Alison, maybe you know, comment a bit about uh, the you know how how to to the extent that the problem is at least in part that this group is very aware, but the publics are not and not as alarmed as perhaps we we think they should be. What what is the role of journalism in that?
6: The role of journalism is. Uh, enormous. And like I said earlier, I'm encouraged to see the growth in climate journalism. But we do still need more people writing on this story. And we need more nuanced stories. Uh, I take a careful look at weather on TV, on local television networks, and I'm still not seeing nearly enough attribution to um, climate change that I would like to see. And, you know, we know whether people are the the scientists of their station, we could definitely use a lot more of that. I think we need a lot more coverage in areas that might not even have a newspaper anymore. And that's really alarming. How do you get to people who are in uh, rural areas or um, who maybe don't have the same access to even internet that many of us do in this room on the Zoom? So the, the hurdle's Sometimes seem insurmountable, but um, I am really encouraged to see also a number of initiatives, including the one that I work on, crop up to help train people who are already in the field doing the work. Something really exciting that's begun to happen recently that I, I guess, I couldn't have imagined, but I find very encouraging is uh, seeing high school students reach out to me now, getting ready to apply for college. Um, Many of them saying, you know, I want to be a climate journalist. We have to remember that this field didn't even exist, you know, uh, just a decade ago. There was no such thing as a climate journalist. I did a scan of journalists with the, the word climate in their titles about a year ago, and 20% of them had, hadn't done anything like this type of work just two years before. So we have to also um, maybe give journalists a little bit of grace because they're really learning on the job how to cover a really difficult story. And um, you all are excellent excellent climate communicators, but I think we also need more support for scientists who are out there in the field so that they can share their work in a really clear and cogent way. So now we're talking a lot about training journalists. You see that everywhere, but but where are the opportunities for scientists to learn how to talk as clearly about this as Malin or or Peter or others in the room can? Uh, I'd like to see much more support and, gr- and growth in that area too. And I also want people to realize that you don't necessarily In fact, you don't have to at all be a scientist to communicate about this work. And so there's this, um, there's, we need communication about climate change to happen across populations, across ages, across political spectrums. And so that means that we need, you know, Peter in the room, but I also want to see our USC students talking about it. And that's where uh, I think that, individual agency is so so important so I'm in agreement with everybody here yeah we of course we've got to tackle this issue of fossil fuel production and go after big oil but I also want to be really mindful of helping young people feel like they still have a voice their voice still means something and they don't necessarily uh, need to go out on the streets and pick it for it to mean something I am in complete support of that type of action but I think even just what we know from the literature just talking about it is one of the most important Important things we can do. These conversations are absolutely crucial for shifting social norms.
2: I want to. Be, uh, I'd love to be sure that we touch uh, on on the sort of international dimension of this. Uh, we are leading up to the to the COP, and uh, um, uh, I want to come uh, back to the question of of you know what what might be happening in places like uh, India or in in Africa or in developing countries and the way in which they are thinking about this and. The challenges that that uh um that the uh, international process may face because of of uh you know the different positions of of countries in this but let, let me let me ask Peter and, and Marcus here uh to jump in on the current conversation and then I, I may come back to you Karen because you've raised that a couple of times and and think about um um Bring this you know give us a bit more of an international perspective on the topic uh, that we're talking about. but uh, peter quickly, and then and then Mark,
7: yeah. so first, I completely agree with Allison. Um, you don't have to be a climate scientist to communicate this about this stuff effectively. In fact, most some of the most effective communication I've ever heard on climate has been from non-scientists who tap into their emotions. And that's what makes it really powerful for people. You don't have to be savvy of all the facts and uh, like the entire IPCC report, but the basic story, and this is what journalists should be doing too, has to involve the fact that this is getting worse. It's a trend that we're on, that it's irreversible. A lot of the damage we're, we're going to live with for the rest of our lives and for many generations. And also that it's the fault of the fossil fuel industry and that they've been lying and disinforming for decades. That's that's a really important part of the story that they are the cause because that's an ad. So if journalists, anytime there's a climate disaster, if those basic facts are included in that story, because I think it is part of the story, just in terms of how we do climate media, that would really inoculate the public, help inoculate the public against these false solutions like carbon capture. Then I wanted to say really quickly to Lori that I totally feel your grief. And your anger, and I completely share it too, um, and also agree with uh, Malin that it's it's never going to be too late to fight as hard as we can. But we are losing things incredibly fast. We are not in the early stages of this emergency anymore. In fact, I was uh, earlier this summer. I was at a workshop, and one of the scientists in the world who I expect respect the most, a mentor of mine, who is uh, an expert on tropical forests told me privately that he feels that the Amazon has already passed its tipping point. And it took me a, a long time. I'm still processing that from a grief perspective because um, I didn't think that that would happen so soon. Um, I respect, I, I'm sure there's other scientists that disagree, but he's one of the best. And for him to say it, he wouldn't say that lately. So we are losing a tremendous amount and it's devastating. And, and that's why I'm going out and getting arrested because writing papers just isn't enough for me anymore. Um, I will say that I, I, uh, an, an oxygen depletion event is not on my radar of things I'm worried about. The things I'm worried about are extreme humid heat, just beyond our abilities, even of healthy people, to thermal regulate. Uh, not even considering most of us who aren't in ideal health or elderly people who don't perspire as much. And then uh, multi multiple simultaneous crop failures and food shortages, which could lead to incredible like geo uh, geopolitical destabilization. Yeah, I know Jeff Goodell pretty well. I'm I'm actually working on um another on another book, my own book about extreme heat. Um, so so those are that's those are the things that for me kind of go bump in the night. And uh, I do sometimes wake up in the middle of the night with uh, pretty bad anxiety. Uh, Being an activist helps me with that. And then the last thing I'll say to address, uh, I know kind of going on too long, but Fritz, your last question about kind of international politics. Um, I think that uh, developing nations right now are pretty angry. And um, I think in COP27 last year, I can't remember the number, but it was, I think, in the tens of millions of dollars of loss and damages that were pledged by uh developed nations to the global South, which is an absolutely insulting number. That's not even couch change for a country like the United States and it's a huge slap in the face to the to these developing nations to expect them to kind of um, transition away from fossil fuels with you know a few hundreds of thousands of dollars each. It's just ridiculously too low.
2: Thanks. Um, Mark.
8: Um, So I wanted to pick up on some of the ideas that Alison was talking about and also Peter about how we communicate and I completely agree that we have to communicate the urgency, the actual damage, the impact of climate change, but I think we need to switch it around as well and uh, engage with communities all the way through to journalists about solutions about all the positive things we can actually do. And for me, it's really interesting when you start to list them out, there are things that we should be doing anyway. So for example, why would we want to phase out fossil fuels? Well, 8 million people die prematurely every year because of fossil fuel caused air pollution. Wouldn't we want to get rid of it anyway? as there are clean alternatives. Uh, When we're looking at homes, don't we want to actually have more efficient heating so people don't die of cold? Don't we want more efficient sort of like cooling because we're having these bigger heat waves? So for me, it's all about shifting the narrative from this is a huge problem. It's really, really scary. The oil companies are trying to uh, kid you that everything's fine, but actually there's a much better future out there. There's a future that we can reforest far uh, vast areas because we want to have the trees back. We want to have our nature back. We can change our diet. So we are all much healthier and live longer. We can change the way we live. And this whole thing, I don't know if you have this in the US, 15-minute cities has become this uh, bogey person for the right wing, which is, how dare you make people actually live within 15 minutes of their shops, their schools, their hospitals, their jobs? You know, God, are you going to make people happy? You know, this is terrible. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to shift, keep the fear, keep the because we're all anxious like Peter, okay? We all go to bed feeling like that, okay? But we also then have to actually bring the solutions. We can't just tell people it's all terrible. We have to say these are all the solutions. And the interesting thing is we can use economics, we can use big business, and we can use policies to actually push those through. We just have to break that strength of the fossil fuel industry on our politicians and on international politics.
2: Laurie, I saw you uh, nodding there uh, uh, as uh, Mark and others are speaking.
4: Well, I, of course, like very much what Mark is saying. I, I think there's a reason that Ministry for the Future, um, Stan Robinson's epic book, has become sort of the most um, meaningful book about climate change, even though it's a novel. It's, it's fiction. And part of it is that he looks at the possibility of a solution existing and of, and paints a picture of a world that has all these transformations made, that has gone towards not only green in the sense of dealing with the CO2 saran wrap in our uh, atmosphere that's holding all the heat and moisture in, but also looking at biodiversity and uh, uh, preserving as many species on the planet as possible and as many habitats as possible and changing the way human beings live. And then you look at it and you say, well, you know what? That would be a great world to live in. It's not just about doing it because there's danger lurking. It's also doing it because something wonderful lays on the other side. And I think that that is the problem right now in the conversation is that the notion of the something wonderful on the other side starts to sound hippy dippy and everybody the corporate world goes yeah, that's all fine and good for your great great grandchildren but not for now and we haven't done a very good job of selling the the vision of a world in which we are we are filled with lush greenery in our cities and we have a, a you know a wondrous panorama of species in our environment thriving. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to just quickly add, as long as I have the uh, I'm capitalizing the microphone here, um, you know, Jim Hansen is, I think a hero to everybody on this panel. And hopefully everybody who's watching as, and listening to the podcast is familiar with his name. He was the first significant scientist to go before the united states congress back in the 1980s and say there's this thing called global warming and here it comes and he is a nasa scientist this uh, last four months when we've had such dramatic um attributable weather catastrophes around the world hansen put out two key papers in his now different way of doing it using mailchimp rather than waiting for a journal And in both of them, he is asking us to look at the energy imbalance. And he's trying to explain the severity of the current crisis and why it has accelerated so much this summer in the Northern Hemisphere, winter in the Southern Hemisphere, by saying we have um, so reversed the energy balance in terms of how much energy, primarily in the form of heat, is leaving the planet versus that which is retained in the planet, that we um, are approaching major tipping points across the spectrum. And I think when um, I was previously saying, we're already there, we're already getting there, whatever exact verbiage I should have been using, I'm thinking of Jim Hansen and thinking, yes, we, we need to on the one hand say, there is terror lurking, and it's how the proximity to all these tipping points that begin with this energy imbalance. But we have to also be able to say there is another way, and it is a beautiful vision, and it is a world you would love to live in, and you certainly would love for your grandchildren to live in.
2: Thanks for that, Lori. Let me bring you back into the uh, conversation. Um, So I think you think, you know, you you think in terms of of, uh, incentives and systems and policies um, and maybe have a different, you know, somewhat different perspective on some of these questions.
0: Absolutely. I'm just as interested as everyone in trying to get solutions. And one of the questions is, why haven't we got solutions over the last 30 years? And I obviously my colleagues think that that's because we have oil companies around. But frankly, I don't think that's a sufficient answer for why we're not making progress. I think that the problems lie also in the fact that I think the environmental community really hasn't provided a good sense of solutions, solutions that people are willing to make, compromises they're willing to make in order to make the planet a little bit better. And I I fear that it's been all or nothing. The environmental community say you have to get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow. I don't want to listen to you. And as a result, we're not talking about other solutions which might actually work, that might get us on the road. Uh, Peter keeps talking about um, carbon capture and storage being a mistake, but that's just getting rid of carbon before it gets out into the atmosphere. That's not a mistake. It's just one more of many things that have to be done. And by keep throwing away all the possible things that we can do, the fact of the matter is we're left with very few things that we will do and we've been doing this for 30 years now. This is COP 28. That's 30 years of, mis- of making mistakes of not making much progress on this. In my sense, it's time to start to saying, look, I wanna do some realistic solutions that actually will get implemented in the short term so we can start the path towards getting rid of future emissions. Because the problem with climate change is not what we've done in the past. It's what we're going to do in the future. It's future emissions that are going to make climate change incredibly dangerous. And that's that's what we need to start focusing on. How can we s- gradually start to get rid of future emissions in a way that the entire planet will join in one agreement? And that's I think that's the thing that is absolutely critical for us to start thinking about.
2: Let me let me uh, you get some some reaction to that, and let me let me just press you just quickly, Robert, just in terms of what you see as those steps or solutions. So, you know, what are those things that you have in mind? And then, well, you you
0: know, it's pretty clear that with mitigation, there's some very inexpensive things to do, and if when you're done with them, there's more expensive things, and when you're done with them, you can get all the way to the end until you have no more emissions to get rid of. But what I hear is that we're not interested in looking at any of these less expensive activities, actions that we can take, just switching from coal to natural gas. You say, oh, that's still fossil fuels. What? That's outrageous. But it, it reduces emissions in half. And it turns out it's not that expensive. So there's some solutions that are right at our fingertips that we need to do during this interim between now and getting to net zero that are gonna help us actually make some change to actually do some things. And for 30 years, not doing any of these low cost emission things is just unnecessarily put carbon into the atmosphere that we just don't want that to happen. And so the idea is we gotta start thinking about practical tools that actually will get, the world will actually agree to and start to do it immediately. Instead of talking about saving the world in 2050, we have to start to talk about what are we actually going to do in the near term to get towards that, and that that requires a little less emotion and a little more thinking about what just are, what's the best you, way to get there. Are you opposed?
4: There. Are you opposed to eliminating uh, or or are you opposed to compelling fossil fuel producers to pay appropriate taxes?
0: No, I'm not at all opposed to that. Most of the 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 subsidies you're talking about actually are in OPEC countries. That are have imposed really high oil prices on the rest of us, and have have not put those same oil prices on their domestic economy. So that's where most of those fossil fuel subsidies actually exist. It's it's countries like Saudi Arabia um, charging very low prices to use fossil fuels in their country. You, you should get rid of those. Um, but but they're not. You're not talking about not having Exxon pay taxes. Exxon paying taxes is is not where the problem is. The the big 10 oil companies that you're probably totally focused on are only responsible for 15% of the oil market. This is, this is not like they're controlling 90% of the market or something. They control for a tiny little bit. The countries that control uh, the oil market are all these big countries that are part of OPEC. Those are the countries that you have to convince. And you're absolutely right. Having a COP meeting at one of those countries it, it, I raise it raises serious questions about how serious COP actually is, because that's where that's where the actual power, economic power behind oil is, and somehow or another, in an international agreement, you have to get those countries to also agree and be part of this. So session.
7: I, sorry, you're we're almost at time Peter, and I really need to yeah. jump in since you're Robert quickly, called me Peter, up. Yeah really, yeah, really quickly. Um, so first, no one's saying we have to end fossil fuels overnight or that we can. You keep coming back to that. But the fact is, the longer we take to do this, the more we lose. We've already probably lost the Amazon. We probably lost most of the world's coral reefs. We might be facing serious, serious problems with agriculture already. Second, carbon capture is a distraction and it's a narrative that the fossil fuel loves to put out there. And third, the reason we haven't made one of the main reasons we haven't made progress over the last 30 years is because of the fossil fuel industry they've purposely done everything they can to block this so i don't know i think it is probably time for us to get a little bit emotional and i fear that a lot of economists and possibly yourself robert are grossly underestimating what a serious problem we are already in today i guess no, i
0: just me. retort you're probably grossly underestimating how much it's going to cost because if it costs just a few dollars a person I guarantee there's, you. There's there's no economy on a
7: dead planet, man. <laughs> there's no economy on a dead planet. You got everything's in the biosphere.
2: Louis, we, we are almost at time. Quick uh, last responses. I think um, I see uh, Melon Sanders uh, and
8: Allison had her hand up.
2: Oh, sorry, um, Allison missed it. Sorry. Insult. I want to take a Allison. quick moment to Quickly address.
6: In- to address this solutions conversation, which is so important. I agree about the necessity of solutions journalism. And I also want to alert you to something new that's happening in terms of how solutions are being uh, contradicted in the media. I used to teach journalists to be aware of false balance, which is to say putting somebody from an oil company up next to a climate scientist. But now we're seeing that's not the biggest issue in climate journalism. We're seeing an issue of solution skepticism. Plenty of it's legitimate. I am hearing what Peter is saying about carbon capture and storage loud and clear, but there's also interest getting into that conversation who are poo-pooing some of the solutions that are out there as delay tactics. So be aware of who is skeptical of these solutions.
2: Right. Um, Malin. I just wanted to
5: say, you know, I I really hear and also empathize and feel much of the anxiety and concern that um, many on this call have, have expressed. And probably many listening to this podcast will, will feel as well with, you know, the changes that are happening in the natural world around us and in our society and we're in a world with many hidden tipping points food webs ecosystems coral reefs amazon and i think the i think a key message to le- end on though is what's been coming up in this conversation it's, is is it's not too late to act and there are solutions and there is actions that everyone on this call or listening to this call can take no matter what role that is it's art it's in politics it's in businesses. It's within companies. It's within nonprofits. Um, it's within our local communities, our local homes, um, and our families. And we don't have to wait for a global agreement. It can also grow grow locally. You know, We need action on all, all levels of society. And I think that's incredibly important because we can't wait any longer.
2: Well, we are at time. So that sounds like a great way to end the conversation. Uh... Uh, this conversation a very rich conversation obviously we could talk for um for a great deal longer uh, about all of these issues um some disagreement about uh how we proceed obviously and that's that's to be expected but uh i think a shared sense of urgency and uh, whatever skepticism we have about the cop process a uh, recognition that uh, we do have to act at all levels so with that let me thank uh all of you for the for your time and and thoughtful comments um really appreciate it um and uh, let us hope that we are able to take some of the actions as quickly as we need to uh on this issue thank you all
1: We recently had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Michael Mann for a special episode of DSR. As an added bonus, we've included a brief segment of our conversation with Dr. Mann here. Dr. Mann shares the motivation behind his newest book and the many factors that led him to call it Our Fragile Moment. As you may have heard when I did the introduction, uh, we are doing a series of podcasts in, in the run-up to COP28, the Climate Summit, in Dubai, uh, which will take place, I think, from November 30th to December 12th of this year.
9: And I do hope to be able to participate in yeah. at least one well, of Well, I
1: was very much <laughs> hope you will. And, you know, we've brought together a diverse group of experts. Uh, I do say, by the way, and I, you know, because we're full disclosure here, that uh the, 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 we got a grant to do, to do all this stuff from the embassy of the UAE here. Uh, and, uh, you know, one condition we, we said of this was that these discussions would be completely independent. And actually, I haven't even had any influence over the, the constitution of these panels. Each of the chairs of the panels have. Um, uh, because I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to blur this. Uh, the subject is, is, is too, too important. Um, uh, and I mean, peop-
9: UAE isn't Saudi Arabia. They're not Saudi Arabia. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're
1: the, well, that they're man. not. But you know, as we go into COP twenty-eight, there's been a lot of controversy around the fact that a petro state is hosting this, and will they go far enough? And you know, I've heard both sides of the argument. I've heard them say, you know, we have Mazdar. we've done a lot of green tech, we've pushed forward, we're trying to move off of being an oil-based economy. And you know, you say yes, that's true. And then on the other hand. You know they've been they've they've been part of that world for a long long time. Um, what's your hope and expectation for COP twenty eight?
9: Yeah, you know um, it, it's a great question. Uh, COP twenty seven was somewhat disappointing in that we had achieved some significant commitments uh, at COP twenty um, six, enough from you know the collective countries of the world to take us from a path where we were headed towards you know, seven degree Fahrenheit warming by the end of the, the, the century to something more like um, uh, four degrees uh, warming, almost cutting the projected warming in half. That's still too much. We've got to get warming below one and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit, or to avoid some of the worst consequences. So COP26 didn't go far enough. And part of why it didn't go far enough is at the last minute, um, India uh, objected to the language. There was language that the countries of the world would phase out fossil fuels on a fairly accelerated time frame. India objected over that language after the agreement had basically already been reached. It was almost, it was, I think, in violation of parliamentary procedure, frankly. It was at the last minute, but there's nothing that could be done other than to weaken the language. They would only tolerate the language uh, phase- down rather than phase out, um, and so we got a weaker agreement in, in language and in collective uh, commitments. Part of the problem there was the Indias of the world, uh, developing countries in particular, uh, are displeased that the industrial powers of the world haven't come up with the funding that had been promised for uh, loss and damage. Basically, the you know the wealthy industrial countries providing in essence reparations for the damage that we already did through our fossil fuel burning and they're feeling some of the worst consequences. So funding both to help them deal with the consequences they're already confronting and to help them leapfrog past the stage we don't want them to go through. We can't afford developing countries to go through the fossil fuel stage that we went through. The planet can't afford it. So we have to make it worth their while To skip past that, to leapfrog directly to renewable uh, and distributed uh, energy. So that was a major sticking point. At COP27 last year, there wasn't much progress at all in terms of commitments. We didn't really get much beyond what we already had from COP26, but we did reach a loss and damage agreement. And I think maybe that paves the way for some progress on mitigation, on reducing carbon emissions at COP28, but it remains to be seen. We have to keep the pressure on. I know there is a lot of cynicism, especially among young folks, um, you know, youth climate advocates who look at the fact that COP28 is going to be held by PetroState UAE, and it just reaffirms their cynicism about the entire process. I hope that it does not end up doing that, because I do think frankly, this is the only multilateral process we have for dealing with this crisis.
1: Yeah, I I mean, like most multilateral processes are designed to be weak. The UN was designed to be weak most, you know, because we still have this notion of national sovereignty as being preeminent, right? Which is a disaster, particularly when you get to things like the climate and hopefully-
9: Biodiversity, and we haven't even signed on to the global agreement on biodiversity.
1: Right, and I, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, hopefully there will be some enlightened moment where we we recognize that we, in, we 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 can only protect national sovereignty by ceding some sovereignty upward onto 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 a, onto a multilateral level but um with regard to cop 28 the majority of people are not going to be immersing themselves in the details of it they probably will read a story on december 10th 11th 12th 13th of this year that said, well, this event took place and X. Now, you know, what's the best that can be hoped for? You know, that I mean, I've, I've seen some rumblings that people are going to make some mo- financial commitments to the developing world. Yeah, the
9: financial commitments are important because loss and damage is not yet, I forget what the promise is, how many billions of dollars, but we're not anywhere close to coming up with the funds that had originally been promised um, for loss and damage. Um, so that's important uh, because I do think it will help. Um, I think it, it, the demonstration of good faith on, on on that side of things will help along, you know, getting the Indias of the world to, to agree to stricter language and to make uh, stronger commitments to reducing their carbon emissions. Um, the other thing that was disappointing, frankly, about COP26 um, was uh, there was originally a hope that there would be some agreement to stop funding new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, the N- International Energy Agency has said, you know, and there, they've been no cheerleader on renewable energy, but, um, but they've been very clear about the fact that um, there is no way to stabilize warming below that dangerous one and a half Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit level and continue to expand fossil fuel infrastructure at the same time, which we're still doing in the United States and other countries are doing it as well. So what we really need is a commitment to fund no new fossil fuel infrastructure, no new coal uh, fired power plants, no new uh, natural gas or oil pipelines, um, no new, uh, you know, uh, uh, ocean uh, uh, drilling, oil drilling. Um, we, we need to stop. Cold Turkey on that doesn't mean stopping all fossil fuel extraction uh, we have to phase that out um, we need to meet energy needs as we decarbonize our economy, but we have to stop expanding the capacity for fossil fuels, which is it's crazy in it's what we're still doing
1: uh, yeah now I would say as, as just a final point and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this um, when the whole process uh, started around the time of the Paris Accords. I, you know, the United States was kind of slow, slow to the table. And, you know, a lot of there was a lot of talk about the Paris Accords, but my view of them at the time was these are very weak. Essentially, it's a bunch of countries saying, we're going to set our own standards and we'll try to meet them. Let's...
9: Name and shame. The enforcement mechanism was so, name and shame. Right. And, yes. and, and,
1: it, and it was just, we were dragging our feet. And that was the Obama administration. We went through, obviously, Trump was no ally of of these issues. But Biden in the inflation reduction... Act. an
9: understatement. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well,
1: exactly. But in Biden in the Inflation Reduction Act made the biggest single commitment to green energy, green tech in American history. And, And it really seemed to me like a kind of a watershed moment, which did not, I think, get the kind of coverage it deserved. But, but but am i overstating that
9: no absolutely it was the boldest the only real climate legislation ever signed into law by an american president um i forget how much 40 billion dollars i think no 240 billion dollars i think of investment in uh, in in clean energy and in other climate investments um and just just yesterday he announced uh this new climate core uh to basically you know fund uh, young folks to um, you know twenty thousand twenty
1: thousand young people to go out and work yeah, on the cloud twenty thousand
9: yeah to to deploy all of the technology into in the solutions that we have now so and that was part of the IRA uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was one of the things uh, that was in there um, and so it was the boldest legislation yet passed and yet it was highly constrained by the fact that it could only pass with the blessing of a cold uh, a coal State uh, Democrat uh, from West Virginia who demanded basically a watering down of the language and so we got a much weaker agreement than we might have got you know with 51 or 52 Democratic uh, senators uh, it was 50 Democrats in the tie-breaking vote by the vice president um, and so we got the strongest agreement we could get under those circumstances and what frustrates me David is that you hear a lot of folks saying uh, you know, blaming uh, Biden. Um, in New York the other day, there was uh, you know it's climate week, uh, UN uh, meeting in uh, New York City, um, thousands of people marching in the streets, and a lot of the criticism was of the Biden administration. But look, the Biden administration can only sign into law legislation that comes out of Congress, and that was the best legislation we could get at the time. Moreover, the sorts of executive actions that we would like to see the administration uh, take are being turned back by conservative courts, by courts that have been loaded uh, with conservative judges and justices after four years of, of of Trump. And so what I find, you know, dangerous is this sort of circling the wagon, or not circling the wagons, uh, the sort of the, the circular firing squad where climate activists blaming Biden and Democrats, rather than realizing that if we want to stronger policy. The only solution is for us to get out there and vote in mass numbers in elections, vote out these climate deniers, vote in climate advocates, give Congress the sorts of the, the kind of majority that it needs to pass more stringent legislation. So I I, I, I I try to remind some of my well-intentioned younger friends that make sure we blame the bad actors and, and not... You know, uh, shoot ourselves in the foot by, you know, by, for example, you know, blaming it on Biden and dampening enthusiasm for people to turn out in this next election because that's what's critical if we want to do more.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more strongly. You know, had there been one more Democrat in the Senate and Joe Manchin's vote, uh, who you you were very uh, nice not to mention him by name, but by Joe Manchin was the guy. <laughs> uh it, if his vote had been offset you would have had a different bill you would have
9: yeah, that's right had a
1: made a, a different contribution and and similarly the more democrats you get in if, you know if you can have, maintain a majority uh you don't get judges who do this kind of craziness um
9: and I mean, you're right we can you know it's a slippery slope that sort of thinking that sort of when we try to reimagine history what if the Supreme Court hadn't stopped the recount <laughs> and we we got a President Al Gore. Where would we be today? Yeah, no, and
1: absolutely, absolutely right. But, you know, we are where we are and people are like, well, exactly. what can I do about climate? You know, I sort my garbage. I drive a electric car. What else? You know, I ride a bike. What else can I do? Well, the, you know, the one party is anti-climate and one party is trying to save it. And, you know, it's not, you know, the, this is not an issue that can be both sides.
9: No, you know, David. That's what I love about you know your show here. Um, You know, you're willing to call out bad actors. Um, You're willing to state objective facts without fear of um, of pushback. Um, Too much of our media today is not willing to do that. They do fall victim to false balance um, and false equivalence, and it's part of why we're where we are today. There isn't enough of a penalty for the bad actors who have led us here because too many of our media outlets are not willing to call out the bad actors. And when you don't call out the bad actors, um, it allows the public to say, oh, well, they're all bad. And so it doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter when nothing could be more wrong.
1: Yeah, it's so true. You know, and I just I I could go on and on because this issue matters a lot to me, but uh, and hope maybe you'll come back. We can keep carrying. I would love the, uh, to. I would love to.
9: I, I, I could talk with you for hours, David. Well, so I, I, this has I, been well good. I,
1: I hope we can. But you know, one of the things that strikes me, and this is a maybe a tangential issue, but I think back on so many stories I've read in the media where so many experts have been quoted and nowhere did it say, this guy is getting paid by big oil. You know, right. right? And the and right. the and you know, it's like, oh no, this is our leading expert on energy, and it's like yeah, but he's on the payroll. It's you know,
9: oh yeah, or even worse than that, it's you know, he, he's the president of Americans for Prosperity. Oh, I'm for prosperity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, How can I do? No, it's a it's a front group funded by the Koch brothers. Um, you know uh, that that you know to sow doubt and confusion, and and and, and yeah, there isn't enough of that sort of. Basic and I mean this is almost like Google level investigative journalism. All you have to do is Google some of these organizations, go to SourceWatch or what have you, and you can see that no, they're fossil fuel front groups, they're not honest players, they're they're not, you know, honest brokers, um, they're bad actors. And we can't put them, you know we can't somehow, you know. Put them on an equal footing with, you know, objective voices with scientists um, or, you know, uh, climate policy experts, uh, independent, you know, uh, climate policy experts. I think this is part of the problem that the media or mainstream media in general sort of um, continue to promote false equivalence about problems like climate change um, to both sides in it. It's sort of like, you know, would you both sides, whether the earth is flat, you know, when you have a NASA, you know, expert, do you have to also have a member of the flat earth society side by side so you can debate whether or not the earth is flat? No, it's absurd. We wouldn't do that. And yet that's essentially what we continue to do when it comes to matters like climate